Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the second hour of our Loving Liberty broadcast and podcast. I'm very happy to uh, introduce a special guest joining me, and we're going to be talking about something that I know is on a lot of people's minds, and that is the coronavirus. But there's another issue that goes along with it, and that is uh, freedom of speech. I want you to welcome Fiona Harrigan. She's a contributor for Young Voices and a political writer based in Tucson. Fiona, welcome to the Loving Liberty broadcast. Thank you for having me. Well, um, I read your article published on spectator.org about the coronavirus and China's free speech crisis. And I thought, this is good. You and you and I need to talk because <laughs> there are so many conflicting stories out there. And, and I have to ask, as, as you approached this story, uh, was it hard to find reliable information, particularly coming out of China where all the action is taking place? It's difficult. And, and as far as statistics go in the disease, even people in the West aren't sure if they can trust the most basic measures of, of deaths and, and confirmed cases. As far as, as citizen reports go, which is largely what I based my piece on, these these academics and these whistleblowers who are talking about the horrors that are occurring in, in Wuhan and outside of Wuhan, there are plenty. Um, and, and they name these atrocities that are occurring, these shortages, these deaths in the streets, these bodies that are lying in the halls of hospitals. It's hard to know what you can trust and what you can't trust, um, particularly as the Chinese government has gotten more and more adamant about cracking down on these reports. Well, and, and that's one of the things that, uh, that I was surprised to learn is, you know, I, I think of China as being, you know, very controlling in terms of, well, this is what the people are allowed to think and see. When the anniversary of Tiananmen Square came and went last year, uh, you know, it was very tightly suppressed. But they're not the only country that is uh, censoring information in, in regards uh, to, to free speech and particularly in, in regards to this uh, coronavirus. What what did you learn? I learned that that um, there are all sorts of measures that China specifically is implementing to keep reports down. Um, it's as simple as private citizens communicating between themselves on texting services. They talk about shortages of face masks and their accounts are being suspended. So it's as simple as person-to-person -person contact. It doesn't have to be these massive information campaigns that a lot of vloggers and commentators are implementing in the wake of the coronavirus. It's it's much more small-scale than that, and that, in a sense, is the most damaging way that they're, they're suppressing information. You know, and you, you pointed something out in your article that I remember when SARS was a thing. I, I mainly just remember, you know, people everywhere wearing masks, and, and there was a little, you know, concern, oh, it's going to come over here, and, and, and nobody knew for sure, you know, where it would go. I didn't realize that was as long ago as it was. What was it, 2002, 2003, when the SARS scare yeah. took place? That's correct. What's the difference between that? I, was it a pandemic? I don't even know for sure. But between SARS and today, there, there's a very different world, isn't there? It's incredibly different. It's And it's a different disease on several counts, and there's a different reaction on several counts. So in terms of the disease, um, today we sit around 70,000 cases of the coronavirus across about 30 countries. SARS, by the time it, it tapered off, um, sat at 8,000 cases. With wow. the coronavirus now, there are about 2,000 deaths that have been reported thus far. With SARS, it was 800. And though the coronavirus is, it's 
arguably slowing down in its infection rate, it's still this massive global issue. And people aren't sure exactly what the ending toll will be for cases and deaths. In terms of the reaction, it's different. It was a different day back in, in 2002 and 2003. People didn't have the, the video capabilities, the, the tweets, the social media platforms that they do now. Back then, it really only became public when Hong Kong, which was relatively free compared to China in terms of flow of information, there were deaths there. And at that point, it started to be reported more widely. These days, China actually reported the coronavirus back in December when it first started to come to light. They, they learned, in a sense, from, from SARS. They couldn't keep this hidden for very long, I, I suspect. Um, these days, though, they are suppressing journalism in a lot of the same ways and, and shutting down public opinion in a lot of the same ways, which is especially concerning. Well, I'm glad we have the tools to know, but I, I'll be the first to say some of this news I'd feel better if I didn't know, right? I'd sleep better at night <laughs> not knowing what's going Absolutely. on. Talk to me about some of the initial um, whistleblowers, if you will, or people who, who bravely stepped forward with this news, even when the, their government did not want them to. Yeah, the uh, the most notable case, I would argue, is Li Wenliang, who was a pretty prominent doctor, actually, at the front lines in, in Wuhan. He came forward all the way back in December when this was still a relatively isolated disease, um, saying that he was highly concerned and, and especially concerned at how the government was, was reacting to this disease. Um, he was immediately told to stop spreading rumors. Spreading rumors was the official In, in quotation marks, rumors. In quotation marks. <laughs> That's correct. He was told to stop spreading rumors, and and he was silenced, essentially. Silenced is the best word for the for what happened to him. Um, he eventually contracted the disease and, and died of it earlier this month. Um, and, and he's become a folk hero, in a sense, because he was one of the first to raise an alarm and, and go public as to what was actually going on in China. There have been a lot of academics who have released open letters challenging how the, the Communist Party is, is treating the disease, and they've been similarly silenced. And a lot of these these people, they're, they're turning into martyrs because they're disappearing. People don't know where they are. People don't know what's happened to them, but they haven't been heard from in weeks. Talk to me about uh, how essential it is to make a distinction between the Chinese people and their government, because I, I know that it's tempting to paint with a broad brush. Well, you know, China's like this, meaning the people and the government. But help us make the distinction between what the government is doing versus the people of China. Right. It, it really is critical to divorce the, the government from the citizens, I think, um, because there is this this broad villainization of, of people from China. I remember the uh, the coronavirus, actually one of the first cases in the U.S. is about an hour away from me in, in Phoenix. And as soon as it hit Phoenix, people here started saying, oh, well, it's just a disease that affects Chinese people. It's, it's wow. an export of the Chinese government. You know, all these conspiracy theories merge. And this entire demographic becomes the bad guy, this, this villain. It's not true. The people in China are, are just as disgruntled by the suppression that's going on as we are, probably even more so because they have to deal with it on a daily basis. They're the ones that are being being silenced and truly endangered by the policies that are occurring. So it's I think that we can all get behind the, the criticisms of the government and of the suppression of free speech. It affects everybody in the end. I was uh, I was surprised yesterday to see what was uh it was touted as cell phone footage that had been um, 
I, I want to say smuggled. There may be a better word to describe it. It basically was it was cell phone footage that had had been leaked from China, showing uh, healthcare workers at a hospital um, just absolutely having a meltdown. And I, I'm not one. To, I mean, I have a healthy sense of skepticism when a politician tells me something. I want to be skeptical about this, but it looked like uh, it looked like really sad conditions. And these Chinese workers, if the subtitles were correct, were saying, "Look, we're sick. We are being worked without end." They don't care. They make us work. We're, go- we're all going to die. I mean, they were, they were on the verge of mental breakdown. Does that jive with, with the information that you have been uh, uh, able to uncover in the course of your research? Yeah, no, that, that seems entirely correct. There are all sorts of photos of, of these nurses with scarring from their surgical masks. There are reports that they're wearing diapers to avoid bathroom breaks that they nap in the halls on the floors so as not to waste time in, in this critical fight. And that seems entirely correct. These people are truly being being worked to death. And, and we've seen that a lot of healthcare workers are falling ill and, and even dying. It's, it's a really concerning precedent um, that I, I truly believe. Um, let me ask you this. In your opinion, what is the benefit to the Chinese government by keeping a lid on this information? I mean, I, I, I'm old enough to remember uh, Chernobyl, you know, in the, in the Soviet Union. And, and the joke was, you know, nothing is wrong, especially near the power plant. And, and I kind of <laughs> get that same vibe from China. Would they not want help if, if there was help available for, you know, a pandemic? That's the open question. But it, it makes them look weak, I suspect, if they admit that there is this crisis that they don't really have a handle on. You know, a lot of the effects that we've seen now probably could have been mitigated had they been more open to international research and assistance and things like that. But there are a lot of comparisons of this to Chernobyl, that there is this this widespread media campaign to keep the true effects hidden. And the reality is now over 10 percent of this massive country is now on lockdown. There are people who cannot travel, cannot leave, cannot access any of their true necessities. Um, and, and in the end, I think that's going to make the country look a lot weaker. OK, we've got to take a real quick break. Are you OK to hang with me for one more segment? Absolutely. Okay. I'm talking with Fiona Harrigan. She is a contributor for Young Voices and a political writer based in Tucson, Arizona. I'm going to link her article, The Coronavirus and China's Free Speech Crisis. I'll put it in the show notes when I put this up for podcast. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I am so happy to have Fiona Harrigan as my guest. She is a contributor for Young Voices. We're talking about the coronavirus, and we're also talking about the free speech crisis in China. And, Fiona, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, as awful as it is to consider, you know, a deadly disease or a pandemic and, and you know, the accompanying suppression of free speech and suppression of truth that the Chinese government is engaging in, is there a silver lining? Is there an opportunity here for, for maybe some free speech to, to gain a toehold? I, I do think there is a silver lining, 
ultimately. It, it, it might be a bit of a torturous path there in the meantime, but at least for now, a lot of people have been really emboldened in a way that they, they haven't previously been to comment on the transgressions that their government is imposing on them. And a lot of these people are linking coronavirus suppression to other free speech issues that China has experienced. So a lot of these whistleblowers are, are making mention of Hong Kong in their, in their videos. They're mentioning the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. They're bringing this vein, this common vein, through all of these issues that have stricken China over the years. I think that's a really important connection for them to be building. They're sensing a pattern and they're becoming increasingly indignant as this, this crisis persists. So I think the fact that they are becoming stronger in their opinions and in their criticisms is a really bad sign for, for President Jinping and a really good sign for the rights of the people. What are the risks that they face for, for speaking out, whether it's on social media or whether it's sending an open letter to their government? Um, is there a potential for them to be punished? There absolutely is. And, and we've seen that most of these very public figures, these vloggers, these people tweeting, these people making these public statements, they are being silenced. They are facing really pressing dangers and, and suppression. And they admit that. They admit that they will likely go down as martyrs and, and might not be heard from again. They know that this is an incredibly dangerous thing that they're doing. But at the same time, they feel that it's necessary. They think that a martyr can start a revolution. There have been plenty of mentions of revolution, plenty of people mentioning quotes from, from Les Mis, plenty of people saying that this could be the end of a regime. Um, and they, they see their sacrifice as worthwhile. You know, I, I've had this impression, and I'd like you to, to uh, either disabuse me of the notion that I've had here or, or tell me if, if, I, if I've seen this correctly. I've felt like China, other than the Tiananmen Square crackdown and um, the, the way that they have uh, treated the, uh, I don't know how you say it, the Uyghur Muslims. Uyghur um, Muslims, yeah. They have generally, they, they've backed off the really hardcore Chairman Mao style communism uh, in favor of, of creating a more capitalist atmosphere that's, that's greatly enriched their country. But it sounds like uh, they, they nonetheless have some very strict controls in place. And th- this disease appears to be one of those things that despite their, their intentions of we will stay on top of it, they can't control. Am I am I wrong to see that there was a to think that there was a a kinder, gentler version of China at some point that uh, wants control but isn't willing to to go as hardcore as they did maybe for Tiananmen Square? It's hard to say. Um, Since the current president took office, uh, there's been this policy of the Great Firewall of China, so to speak. That's a combination of technological efforts to prevent free speech, along with legislative efforts to uh, prevent free speech. That's been in, in place since about 2012, I, I believe. Um, and it's it's greatly limited the freedoms that people experience in terms of journalism and free speech. It's hard to say if, if that's any lighter than, than the crackdowns that have historically occurred in China, but they've been just as dangerous, I, I would argue. I think that they've been just as far-reaching, and they've covered up atrocities just the same. Well, the, the difficulties the Chinese people are facing are are without question, you know, very, very real. Um, talk to me for a minute about your perception of what are some of the things that those of us outside of China uh, may nonetheless feel as a result of this uh, coronavirus, um, maybe economically, maybe medically. Are there are there some unintended things that, that likewise will have a ripple effect and go out to the rest of the world? Yeah. And in, in terms of the disease, 
I mean, there's the the obvious case that this has infected a lot of people in a lot of different countries, and there is still potential for it to spread. And, and it is a deadly disease. It could very well kill people across the world. Economically speaking, it's causing massive shortages. There are plenty of manufacturers that are having to delay production and, and having to shift production because of these shortages that are emerging in China. It's had a major toll on, on travel patterns. Airlines have suspended service between the U.S. and China um, since since the, uh, the most severe outbreak of, of this in, in January and February. It's hard to say if the economy will will suffer long-standing losses, but at least in the short term, it seems that it's been been pretty jarring, and it's it's caused a lot of people to worry. Something that I've heard too that uh, I, I really had never given thought to before is uh, how much of our own medical supplies, and I'm talking band-aids and cotton balls and things like that, come from China. They're manufactured in China. And my understanding is this is going to have a very definite effect on what medical supplies are available here in the U.S. simply because so many of them are created there and shipped over here. Right. And even in the case of face masks, we're experiencing shortages. When the first cases hit the U.S., they... A lot of people wanted to seek out these supplies that they perceived to be helpful in preventing the disease. But because they've been so sold out worldwide, it's it's impossible to get a hand on them. So that's that's concerning in and of itself, really. Okay, and let's I, I'm going to take you back here for just a moment to kind of go back to let's not uh, let's not tar and feather the Chinese people over, you know, what their government's response to this disease is. But I want to get your reaction to the idea. You know, the reason this is happening it's because, you know, the Chinese were eating a bunch of exotic foods or they were eating bat soup or something like that. D- does any of that ring true or is, is there another explanation that's more likely? Maybe, maybe not. A lot of people say that, that there was a species to species jump. They're still not entirely sure which species led to this. Some say bats, some say snakes, some say pangolins. They don't know. It did originate in a, in a seafood market, most likely. That's where the first cases were all centralized. But that ties back to the villainization of, of Chinese people. You know, there is this, this cultural practice of eating exotic dishes. And a lot of people have quickly called it disgusting and revolting and left it at that. They say that this is just karma for, for these weird practices, so to speak. Um, I don't think that progresses any understanding, any helpful treatment, any any tackling of this disease. Um, it's it's just another part of this this villainization tactic. Yeah, and I mean, look, and, and on the other extreme, there's the idea. Well, you know, this was actually created in a uh, biological weapons lab, and <laughs> you know, now it's being unleashed. And I mean, look, right. I, I just watched The Stand by Stephen King, the made-for-TV movie last week with my family. <laughs> we all got kind of a chuckle out of Captain Trips, but um, people's imaginations can run wild with them. What's your best advice for someone who is trying to make sense of the situation that's going on in China? Um, what what kind of things should they give more credibility to and what kind of things should they say, I'll need a grain of salt to go with that? At this point, I think in, in the United States in particular, it's the coronavirus is a lot of people have, have reported that it's less concerning than the seasonal flu. That's an important thing to keep in mind. It's not necessarily a pressing issue for us here. It's much more concerning for the Chinese people who are actually stuck in these quarantined areas. And, and what's more is they're being 
persecuted and and punished by this regime. I think that's more concerning to me than the effects of a disease here. At the same time, I think it's important to to give some weight to these citizen accounts, to listen to these journalists, to recognize the people who do go missing and when they go missing and why they go missing. Um, at, at the end of the day, they're putting these messages out there for distribution because they want to bring light to these these transgressions. And without an audience, it'll be for nothing. Okay. Fiona Harrigan, I appreciate you uh, shining some light and truth on our program today. Where can people find your work? Where can they read some of your writing? I, you can find me in, in places like the Detroit News, the Washington Times, Washington Examiner. I'm out in the world. I write on free speech here and abroad, foreign affairs, and whatever else is interesting, depending on the week. Well, keep up the good work. I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Thank you very much. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Lines are open at 801-331-8113. Okay, so there was one thing I wanted to mention. Actually, I, you know, I, Jared, if you're listening, I, my friend Jared Green had a very important announcement. For those of you who have the time and the inclination to stand for your fellow citizens, there is a, uh, there's a city council meeting taking place in Sandy. I believe it is at 5, uh, I think it's at 5.15 or 5.30. This afternoon at Sandy City Hall, let me go to the phone on the hopes that uh, that maybe it's Jared on the other line. If it's not, we'll run with it. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hello, Brian. Sam calling. How well, are you? well, you're not Jared, but that's okay. Sam, how are you? Uh, no, I'm not doing bad at all. Uh, everything's going reasonably well. Uh, I wanted to comment back earlier. You were talking about the issue of occupational licensing, and that's something else I wanted to bring up because I always. They always use children as pawns in this stuff. Got to keep the children safe, or they got to do this instead of what they really want to do you know, with it, which we've discussed before, but I want to bring a different angle to it on this safety issue. You know, there's this thing called teaching kids how to be responsible adults, or as responsible children, and uh, to grow up to be responsible adults. And I'll give you a good case in point. Back in the uh, 60s, I can remember... Uh, one of my nieces, for Christmas, got this thing called a creepy crawler set. I don't know if you remember these or not, but the way they worked was you had this goop-like stuff, almost looked like paste, that you put in this mold, and then you'd put it on this uh, device that would heat it up, and what you would come away with is these real rubbery-looking, almost looked like silicone rubber, uh, creepy crawler type things. You know, they'd be different shapes of everything from snakes to God knows what all. But the point of the matter is, is that if you were not careful, you could burn yourself on this. I mean, it got hot. I mean, it wasn't like anything to just get warm. I mean, it got hot to the touch. I mean, you know, to the point where you could burn yourself. 
And I can remember my niece using this stuff all the time. I mean, she played with this stuff all the time. And uh, she survived it. I don't think she got one burn on herself. And uh, we forget that there was a time when we didn't balk at these kind of things. I mean, children would go out and they'd play and get themselves all scraped up. And I remember doing my share of that, coming home with skinned up knees when I'd accidentally take a bicycle and go riding into a parking lot and I crashed in. I remember one accident I had where I crashed into those, you know, them little car bumpers they used to keep cars from running into the buildings. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And I went over those. Uh, I hit one of them and, of course, the back end flipped up on the bike and I landed um, I landed on and skinned up my knees real good and everything. Came home with bloody knees and bloody nose and everything else, but I survived it. And uh, this is we're trying to insulate children from everything. Let's let them be responsible people. Here, here. No, I'm I'm no. with you. I mean, look, uh, my sister had an easy bake oven, and and you I know, remember those. You know, it, it yeah. just it cooked with a light bulb. Yes, a high intensity light bulb, but that's what it worked with. And we burned ourselves, and we still got by and ate the world's crappiest cakes and cookies. You know that we baked ourselves, <laughs> yeah. but but boy, did we have fun doing it. I remember them. They had two light bulbs, one on the bottom and one on the top, and you slid the uh, you slid these uh, these things you put your cakes in. They were little trays. You slid them in yep. there at one end, and and they would sit there. And they would they weren't the greatest cakes in the world, but by golly, it, the things did. I mean, they they did get warm, and I remember those. Yeah, absolutely. So that's another one. Easy bake oven. Yeah. I think my I mean, parents my parents may have regretted giving my sister that because. Once she and I figured out, hey, it's the light bulb that's the source of heat, we took the lampshade off a lamp that we had there in our playroom, and we discovered, did you know that this light bulb will melt crayons if you hold them against it? And sure enough, it did. And it wasn't until it started smoking that we realized, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done that, but, uh, you know, you live and learn. Yeah, that's it. I mean, uh, but, you know, I mean, it's... uh you know, and they even said in the manuals, you know, to make sure you have uh, adult supervision, you know, when you have children working with these things like the creepy crawler sets and stuff like that, which I can understand that. I mean, you know, you, you depend on the age of the child and and how um, mature the child was. But the point of the matter is, is that we all survived. I can remember kids um, being 10, 11 years of age that would iron clothes. I mean... Boy, you talk about something getting hot. You want to get something real hot, a steam iron. Back oh, yeah. Back in the 60s and 70s, steam iron. Man, them things called you good with that steam coming out of there. So just a little bit of uh, nostalgic um, conversation here just to get people to understand that we weren't always this way, and we got by just fine. I appreciate you reminding us, and I wish more people would stop to consider, hey, we not only survived, but we actually thrived during those times. We did, absolutely. And that's all I got, Brian. Okay, Sam, thank you so much. By the way, I did find the information uh, that uh, that Jared had asked me to share with you. And again, this is for my friends who are listening in the Salt Lake City area. Kuahara Farm has been under attack for the last nine years by the city of Sandy. And, you know, I know it's it's tempting. We're kind of trained to think of these kind of things in terms of, well, they must have done something to bring that attention on themselves. And, you know, the, the city must have some reason for coming after them. I would encourage you to jump on Facebook. Look for Kuahara Wholesale. That's K-U-W-A-H-A-R-A, Kuahara Wholesale. And they've got a full timeline. Nine years of nonsense. 
And I know there are good people who work at the city of Sandy, just like there are good people who work elsewhere. But you know what? It's the nature of government, even right down to the local level, to justify itself. And what's being done to this family is, well, I'll let you make up your own mind. I Personally, it strikes a very unfair nerve with me. But at 545 today at Sandy City Hall, they are going to be having a city council meeting. And my friend Jared asked me to, to ask you, please show up and, and lift your voice in support of this family-owned business. They're, they're growers of food. I, I don't know if this matters to you or not, but, you know, people who produce food have been under attack in so many different ways, large and small, you know, from the federal government right down to the local level. It's in our interest to stand up for them. Even if you're a gardener, even if you think, well, I produce all my own food. I don't need any. I don't even go to the grocery store. It's worth your time to stand up for other people because eventually it's going to be you. All right. I'm going to shift gears here now. Um, Talking with Sam, I want to bring this up. And this may seem like a really weird transition, but I I want to bring this up. Um, Sam, who we just had on the line with us, is, is sight impaired. And it's it's curious. I have at least four different listeners who um, are either blind or seeing impaired. And, you know, some of them actually have been blind from birth. And I, I just saw the most fascinating article. Blind people, I'm sorry, people born blind don't develop schizophrenia. I don't know what it means. But this was an article I saw on Futurism.com. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. But in all of medical history, at least recorded medical history, there has not been a single documented case of someone who was born blind and also developed schizophrenia. And doctors cannot explain why. Over the years, different doctors have arrived at a variety of possible explanations, according to Vice. But none have landed on a definitive understanding about what it is about congenital blindness that creates a shield from the psychological disorder. Now, this article says, intriguingly, people who are born sighted but later go blind have a higher than average chance of developing schizophrenia. And that makes King's College London psychiatrist Tom Pollock believe that the mental illness is linked to disruptions in the brain's ability to model their surroundings and predict what will happen around them. He said the idea we're trying to get at is there must be something different in the representation and the stability of the internal world in congenitally blind people. And that stability, in a way, he says, is keeping itself protective against the kinds of mistakes and false inferences you get in schizophrenia and psychotic disorders. Now, look, for people who've never had to deal with a loved one having to uh, to work through mental health issues, this may sound like it's all Greek. It may, well, yeah, well, nobody knows, you know, it's, they, they think maybe it's just something that's made up. I've known people who have had to deal with real hardcore mental illness, including schizophrenia. And it's it's such a serious and sometimes debilitating disease in that... Uh, it, it, it affects every aspect of their lives. And, and I know that uh, there are, are certain police departments that have actually trained their officers how to deal with people who suffer from uh, these types of mental illness. Just so they can understand. And, and part of the training is they put on headphones and then they're they're told you need to uh, you need to complete this task, which requires some degree of concentration. While at the same time, you've got five or six different voices screaming in your ears. And you have to try to focus and work through it. Now, it's, 
it's not something that uh, that I'm trying to make light of. I just offer this as what a curious thing. People who are born blind don't develop schizophrenia. Looking at how uh, some members of our society are struggling with their mental health. I don't know. I don't have answers. And I, and I, I don't even have a conclusion to come to, so I guess I'll just shut up and go to break. But it's an interesting article. I'll post it with the show notes. We'll be back right after this. back. Welcome to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Hey, before we finish the hour, I'm going to share an article with you from Paul Rosenberg. Um, I know there's a lot of concern about, uh, you know, the coronavirus and cold and flu season. Had to go pick up my daughter from school today because she uh, came home feeling sick. Uh, Paul has a really interesting take on wellness consciousness. And in fact, it may seem really counterintuitive, but it's just uh, it's just clever enough. I want to share it with you. We'll do that here in a few moments. Let's go to the phone where my friend Rathbite is standing by. Hello there. Hello. Before I go into my main topic, I would like to comment on an article that you read last Friday on last Friday's show regarding global warming. Do you recall? Um, I don't. I've slept since then. I'm sorry. You'll have to refresh my memory. <laughs> Short-term memory is getting short. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, you, you, you read an article on Friday's show at the closing of the show. You didn't take any comments on it because there was no time. And it was the most fascinating article I'd ever heard. And the only thing more fascinating about that article than the article itself was your support of it. It was riddled with ad hominem attacks, ludicrous assertions, and pure opinion asserted as fact. It had absolutely zero science behind it. You should go find that and look at that article again and then ask yourself if you even though you may have a bias against the idea of global warming, ask yourself if that's really the kind of article that you want to represent. It was very poorly done. I couldn't believe that you were enthusiastic about it. I think you should reread it and rethink it. Well, that's 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 what I do to keep my listeners guessing. Actually, I, I you know, I don't uh, I'll, I'll have to look it up. But uh, now, was it challenging the <clears throat> settled science? Uh, yeah, it has something to do with that subtle science idea. But, you know, I, I hear I'm just I hear so much anti-global warming that has just pure opinion and, and, and asserted with with no actual scientific discussion. And it amazes me that there's so much of it on the on the right that 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 they're so they're so biased against the possibility that one. So I can't even believe that some people still think there is no global warming. But two. The only next argument is that whether or, man, whether or not man is causing it. Um, and I, I really believe that if, if we just took it point by point scientifically, we could all come to the same conclusion. Oh, no, but I've got the one. I've got it here like now. Climate worship is nothing more than rebranded paganism. And I'll, I'll agree. Yeah, the guy, the guy was the guy was using some loaded terms. I don't disagree with his central tenet, though, which is it has become a religion to some people. I, I, I don't I don't agree that. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe you could try to equate that, but you know, money is a religion too. You know, in the the faith and credit and money. You know, I, I I guess you could start to argue something like that, but you cannot even remotely argue that across the board against everybody who who believes that global warming is happening and that man 
has created it. There, you know, no, and I don't. I don't think that's what he was doing either. Though, um, what he what he pointed out here is that the left has created a climate crisis, and and worships it. And there are those who are trying to tell us, look, if if you'll just let us tax you to death, we can change the world's climate. I don't buy that. That uh, sounds that, like the, opportunism. The whole thing about taxing. No, the whole thing about taxes, is, all of that is completely erroneous. We're going to have to have a conversation another day about this. That is okay. so erroneous. Uh, I'll just tell you this, that the private sector is really doing the, the, the hard work, and, they're, and they're, they are succeeding at it. The private sector is doing – like they're taking carbon out of, out of uh, manufacturing plants now and converting it to, into uh, uh, fuel cell electricity and feeding the grid with it. If they ever put this on cars, you can drive cars around and charge your battery off of the fumes from your car. You won't even need an alternator on the thing anymore. Nice. Um, I mean, the, the, the private sector is really taking hold of this. While we're all arguing that it doesn't exist, the private sector knows that it does, and they're actually making a lot of money making the world a lot cleaner. And I think you should, you should I don't argue. your bias. I don't argue that climate change doesn't exist. I just uh, I argue that uh, a political solution is going to do something about it, especially one that, that gives more power over me and my pocketbook. The, the political the political arguments that are out there are not important because the people are doing the work. The private sector is that's that's where you need to focus is where the private sector is going, and start taking the arguments point by point. Those kind of articles don't cover any science, but if you take the scientific points. In the argument, point by point, like do one argument until you're thorough on it, then go to the next, go to the next. You probably got about 30 or 40 of them that you got to get through. But when you get through it, you'll really understand. But those kind of articles are just distractionary. Okay, fair enough. I appreciate your take on it. I, you know, I, so I, wanted, I, wanted to I, I always have those. more to learn, but, but it struck a nerve with me. And I think, I think the guy's point of, um, for some, it has become a pagan religion and a religious experience. I, I think he's right. I've seen it. You know, I, the, I, I the, think that that's such a small, unimportant point. It's not even worth discussing. That's what I believe. But and yet here we are. <laughs> yeah. And, well, I'm only discussing it to tell you that it was a ludicrous art, uh, article, and, and, and you shouldn't really support it because it kind of makes... It kind of makes you look silly if you support such a silly. I'm, to- I'm totally willing to look silly, but but you know if if you want me to uh, if you want me to fall in line with your thinking, you're going to have to bring something more than simply you look silly. I am bringing something more than you look silly. I'm just saying that if an argument is so so ludicrous at its premise, and it's so it's such minutia and unimportant uh, to, to the overall uh, topic, it, it's it's like you're you're. You're down there in the smallest of, of, of things that you could talk about rather than the things that are really substantial or substantive that have some substance to it. That, I, don't, I don't think that, like, the idea of worshiping, I mean, it's just an opinion. It's his opinion. That's all it is. And nobody cares about that. We care about the facts of what's really going on with the planet. We don't care about somebody's opinion that we're worshiping global warming. I, I believe that Okay, but here's, here's what I do care about, is that there are people who care about it deeply enough that they actually are bullying as a result of it. And, you know, it's, it's heretical. You're a denier if you, don't, if you don't accept whatever it is they're saying. And I, I'm, The bullying that I see is in that article. The bullying that I see is the bullying that's being done to people who do believe in global warming. That's what I'm witnessing. I'm not doing any bullying. I've, I'm trying to have scientific discussion about it. But articles like that are the bullying articles. Th- that was filled with ad hominem attacks, ludicrous assertions, and pure opinion asserted as fact. It was not a good article. Okay, can I, can I make this better. suggestion then? 
write a response. I mean, seriously, this is probably the worst format because we're already up against the clock here. But, um, you know, if, if you want to if you want to write a substantive response to it with scientific fact and, and with things to back I'd up what to, you're saying, I'd love to get into I would say you. go for it. OK, that's great. I'll, do, I'll, I'll we'll work on that in the future. I'll say one thing about the schizophrenia, though. Yeah. Is that in looking at that, I see that a person who is born with sight and then goes blind ha- has a disrupted world where everything now becomes different. And sighted people who get disrupted and, 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 and experience schizophrenia because they're, even if they're fully sighted, the, the, with the games people play and, and all, the, all the craziness and insanity of our society, which we talk about here every day, uh, that can disrupt a person emotionally uh, and then physically and then cause them to have that. But a person who's born blind uh, they don't have the disturbance, and they have a very small world. A person that's born born blind has a has a very well controlled, okay. stabilized world for the most part that they learn to operate in. So they never have these massive psychological psychological sorry psychological shifts from relationships. They probably have fewer relationships. They probably go fewer places. Got they it. read fewer things, okay. and they have fewer. I got to stop you here because I'm I'm really up against the clock, and I have to get some of this stuff in from Paul Rosenberg. Call me back, and let's talk again another time. We always have uh, intriguing conversations, and I do appreciate that about you. It keeps me on my toes, and I need that. Wellness consciousness. This is the article by Paul Rosenberg. I will link it in the show notes. He says, I don't often write about health, but today I have something to add to the conversation. He says, what I'd like you to understand is that being free of sickness is not some distant dream. In fact, it's something that real human beings are presently enjoying, some even for decades at a time. Now, he's not claiming some perfect prescription for long health. He's just passing along things that he's come to know. And he starts with a with he actually has a link to a clip of Charlton Heston in an interview with Dick Cavett. And as the clip begins, Cavett and Michael Crichton had been discussing the problems of medical practice and hospitals. And then Cavett turns and asks Charlton Heston, do you fear hospitals? And what you learn is that Heston, 46 years old at that time, has never really been sick. In fact, he seems reluctant to get into the subject. And Paul Rosenberg says, I think I know why. So many people get sick so often that he feels a need to pull back from the subject. The point here being that people can focus tremendously on sickness. Now, for some extent, that's understandable. Sickness kills after all. But he says focus on sickness also primes us for it. The more you think about it, the more likely you can get sick. So he says, here's what I'll tell you. You can make up your own mind. He says, the first step is just this. Stop expecting to get sick. If it sounds trivial, he says, please, just try to do it. Between Big Pharma's endless TV advertisements, the annual Winter Fear Fest, and the sickness is the norm expectations of those around you, it's harder than you think. But he says, expectations are immensely powerful. And while the ties between what we expect and what we get can be murky, they're often quite real. So people who train themselves not to be sick, energetically fighting the expectation of, oh, I'm getting sick, among other things, very often do not get sick. It's a fascinating thought. I'll encourage you to check it out in the show notes. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. <laughs> 